All right, let's look to the Lord in prayer. By the way, is this, are we good here? This is what, it sounds kind of funky. But, all right, we're good? All right, let's pray. Dearly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a God who saves, that you are faithful, that you are the God who is all-powerful, the God who is holy, a God who is righteous. Thank you we get each day to see grace and mercy being poured out in abundance to us sinners. What we're going to hear today from your word is something that is going to be countercultural. It's going to be hard for us in our, in our earthly minds to grasp this way of living, this way of thinking, this way of responding. So, dear Holy Father, open our eyes to see. Help us to, to understand because what we're about ready to read from your word is going to, in many ways, roll us because this is not the way we want to respond in our flesh. Help us. We are desperate in need of you. In your name we pray. Amen. So what makes you unique? What sets you apart from the herd, if you want to call it? Some of you have skills and talents that set you apart. Some of you... Um, you know, you're good at this, or you're good at that, and so that kind of sets you apart if someone's saying, hey, we need, let's say, a plumber. Well, some of us don't like plumbing projects, and so we're willing to call, and that kind of sets you apart, your talents and your skills. Some of you are set apart by the way you talk and your accents. If you hear someone from the South talking, it's, it's sometimes it's very easy to hear you're not from the North, or vice versa. One of the things that also sets us apart is some of the ways we live. Um, some of us have lived in cities, and so we're very streetwise. We know what to do when we're in a major city. Others of us, when we didn't grow up in the major city, we think Marshfield is you know, the biggest city there is, and you go to Chicago and you are just blown away by this much movement, this many people. You know, I've listened to people from the country come, and there's two cars that they have to wait for, and they just think, oh, the traffic here is just horrible. And even those things impact us. After living in central Wisconsin for only two years, I have learned that if you are born and bred in central Wisconsin, you do not say yes. You just say, yeah, when something is going on. As well as if you're completely in agreement with what's happening or you're, there's something that you want to say, sure, we're going to do this, you do not say, yeah, that's going to happen. You go, sure, you betcha. And you throw you betcha in there as if that's going to now like get this going, and it portrays that you live in central Wisconsin when you talk like this. No one has to say, I wonder where they're from, because literally their speech betrayed them in a good way. We're going to see in today's passage the call on Christians. And if you say you are a follower of Christ, here is what's going to flow from that. Just like someone who would sound like they're from the South, you would say, no, you're not from Wisconsin, because you have a southern twang, the twang is keeping you very clear where you stand. The same thing is going to be called, if you claim to be a Christ follower, there's a way of thinking, there's also a way of actions that are going to come with that, that I'm hopefully going to play out for you, that Peter is saying, this is what you've literally been called to do, if you're not living this way, you should check to see where you really are, because if you're claiming to be a Christ follower, here's what the call to that looks like and played out in real life. And so this call, though, is going to be so great 
that literally to obey the calling of being a Christ follower will literally separate you from the world. By this alone, you are going to be unique. You're going to be different. And so let's look at the text in front of us. 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. So I want to just start breaking this down. Notice you see at the beginning of the passage there, finally. So obviously he's concluding a point, And I would argue that he's concluding the point that he basically started back in chapter 2, verse 13, where he's going to be talking about individuals all the time. He's talking about masters and slaves. He's talking about husbands and wives. He's individually talking. And now he's bringing a conclusion there. And he says, now finally, all of you. So he went from talking to individuals. Now he's talking to the whole collective group. And another way of saying this, he's speaking to all of the followers of Christ. Remember the group he's talking to in chapter 1, verse 1. These are exiles. These are sojourners. The body of Christ that has been spread all over as exiles. So he's speaking, if you want to say it, to the church. And what he's saying here is finally all of you. And now he gives what to do. And in this here, what we're going to see, because hopefully your ears picked up in verse 9, that that sounds kind of different. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. And you're like, how is that going to happen? Well, that will not happen unless verse 8 happens. And so verse 8 precedes verse 9 for a reason. And so let's look at verse 8. And uh, the point here that I... Uh, that I believe that Peter is trying to remind us is there's an inward change that must take place before that outward action is seen. So point number one is we're going to see the inward change. And so the first part, there's five things in here that Peter tells us. As a body of believers, we are to have. First, we see it says, have unity of mind. And so we have to look and say, so what is unity of mind? And literally this word means having the same mindset or another way of carrying with it is moving in unison together. So what this is, is in your, in your way of thinking um, in a positive way. Imagine a stampede of animals that are moving together. And as they move, you know, there's a shift here, a shift there, and they move around things, but they're moving in unison together the same direction. And when something moves like that in unison in the same direction, stopping something like that is going to be very difficult because you have a mass of church followers moving in unity with one another. Now, when we think about the mindset, say, so what are we moving in unity around? All right, it's not because a streak of lightning hit and we're all just spooked running to who knows where. All right, we are moving in unison. If you're a Christ follower, if you're a Christian, you're moving in unison around your battle cry, which is the gospel. You are moving in unison that Christ came and redeemed you from sin and has set you apart to follow after him. And not only that, but what he has done is he has created in this thing called the church, a group of people that think differently and act differently and have their minds focused on the gospel and the gospel alone. And we move in unison in that way as a body, as our banner cry being the gospel that goes out to the nations, that Christ has come to save and redeem, and that call goes out in unison together. Now, I want to, be, I want to take a moment here and to walk through this for a second because there are ditches you can fall on either side of this. So there can be 
unity, and usually when you say we need to have unity, that means someone's compromising something somewhere, right? You know, you have all of those struggles that are going, let's all get together. Does that mean we just ignore all of our differences and everything else like that? And this has been a struggle of the church at large that I'm not going to talk about that so much today. I'm going to talk about what does it look like for CBC to move in unity, all right? Because each of us come from different things, and it is very clear that doctrine does divide. There are things like if you believe this and someone believes that, you go, what do we do? Do I just ignore what I think? And do I just ignore what this thing thinks? So how does a body like this that is coming from multiple different backgrounds, how do we work together in our unity? Well, one of the things that I would, why, why I really do believe we stress, and I enjoy stressing this in October because it's a great time to, to ex- stress this, is we here at CBC hold what I would argue plays out the gospel, or the, we would call them the five solas of the faith, and they are very simple, which I believe derive from the gospel. That is, Scripture alone is our authority. And what Scripture says, we do. And what Scripture does not give us the ability to do, we do not do. So whatever, whatever it says don't do, we don't do. Whatever it says do do, we should do. Second, that we are saved by faith alone. That it is not works that save us. It's our faith in Jesus Christ. And that is done through grace alone and through Christ alone. There is no salvation outside of Christ. We don't look to the church to save us. We don't look to anything else. It is Christ alone. And finally, we are to do all we do for the glory of God alone. And that is our battle cry. That is our thing that sets us apart. And the more you dig into those, the more you realize that sets you apart from a whole lot of things that still call themselves Christian, that we're not working our way to salvation. It is a trust in God and God alone. Yet even in those five things, there's going to be things that we don't agree with. And I would encourage you, if you truly take the Bible seriously, you will have robust conversations about things. Because I take the Bible seriously, and you take the Bible seriously, and we're members of this church, we should have some robust conversations about stuff. But we do it in such a way that we understand that at the end of the day, we are moving together with the rally cry being the banner of the gospel. Now, just a little side note, There may be some things that if you're asked to be in leadership that you need to be on more of a part with because we need the leadership to be moving forward. We don't need one person to say this and another person say that. But in the membership world, we're going to have some disagreements. There's going to be some people that are going to hold to some of these things, but they are not surrounding the gospel. Yet in those disagreements, though, I would say, encourage you, do not shy away from having a great, robust conversation because you know what? The Bible doesn't change. And when you're having this conversation, you have it with what the Word of God says. We don't have conversations of, well, well, I think it says this, and you think it says that. You go, like, let's just keep digging into the Word of God. And we do this in a loving way. We do this in a gracious way. Because the Bible's the final authority. Not your opinion, not my opinion. It's what the Word of God says. And that's what helps us stay unified because Satan, what he wants to do is divide us as quickly as he can. He wants us to get caught up on some smaller, I would call not minute, but smaller issues that are not gospel-centric. But we can get so drawn away in some of these things that before you know it, we're allowing them to divide us and not see the kingdom that is attacking us that we must fight together for. There's much more that can be said about that, but I just wanted to decide that for a moment to understand that this is how a body of believers moves forward. So this inward change, we must have a unified mind. Second, we must be sympathetic or have sympathy. What that carries with it is the feeling or the, carrying the burden of someone else, this burden that is on us. 
when we start to realize that we are sympathetic to the struggles of others, another way of saying it is when we start to understand and put ourselves in their shoes and that heart of sympathy that is there, that is easy for those who are kind to us, but it's hard to be sympathetic if you want to say when you see your enemy struggling or someone who has wronged you or reviled you to feel sympathy for them. Next, we see this idea of brotherly love. This idea of brotherly love is a reminder, as the body of Christ is speaking here, this idea of loving, of love of a family member. When we talk about the body of Christ, we understand that even Matthew 10, 37, where Jesus is speaking and he says, your love for the body of Christ is even greater than your love for your family, because this is your first family, because you have more in common with this family than you do your own blood relatives, because this family here, by God's grace, you will spend eternity with if they know Christ. And if your blood relatives do, they will spend eternity together. But this is your family that God has called you into. And your love for one another is so great. Why? Not because the other person is worthy of your love, but because they are Christ follower and you see Christ in them and you love Christ, so you love them. This is what this brotherly love is talking about. Next, we see this idea of a tender heart. This tender heart concept literally means tender to the very core. Uh, this word here, tender heart, uh, carries with it is used as having a strong gut to, uh, concept. It's an intestinal word in the Greek, this idea of to the very core you are, of having a tender heart. And then finally, we see here a humble mind. So unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. It's interesting, he starts with the unity of mind and ends with the humble mind. This humble mind is the idea of a lowly mindset. And I would argue all of the ones before, unity, mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and tenderheartedness can only come about when we are humble. And so why does that come about? How does humility come about? Humility comes about in this way. When you understand as a follower of Christ, you are a sinner that has been saved by grace. As the old hymn says, I'm only a sinner saved by grace. This is my story. And what's my story of being a sinner saved by grace? It's God be the glory. I'm only a sinner saved by grace. When you start to allow that to sink into your heart and mind that none of you, None of us deserve salvation. You did not make yourself, you did not clean up yourself, and somehow God said, I'm really glad to save you. No, you came with the only thing that you could have come to your salvation with is the sin that demanded the need of salvation. And you threw yourself, if you're a follower of God, you threw yourself on the mercy seat of God and said, God have mercy upon me, a sinner. Now, these five here, I'm going to argue, are the outcome of your salvation. That when you have been redeemed, when you have been changed, because I think sometimes we, we forget this. Because when we listen to what the Word of God says about the, the sinner's state before they are redeemed, we need to remind ourselves all the, over and over again. In Ephesians, it reminds us that you were dead in your transgressions of sins. And dead means dead. All right? what I've been, lately, I've been around a lot of dead raccoons, and not a single one of these dead raccoons has done anything more than just lay there. All right? They don't move. They're dead in their transgressions of sin. The Bible reminds us that we had a stony heart. Our heart of stone was in our heart, and we needed a heart of flesh. The heart of stone, the dead man who has a heart of stone cannot take out his own heart. It was God who opened our eyes to redeem us. 
And in the opening of our eyes, he caused us in that saving work that he did was to see him as the most glorious and wonderful thing. And as the song said, as our eyes are open, we rose, went forth and followed him. Not because I'm taking these steps as if it was my own strength. It was God and his work that redeemed me and drew him to ourselves. And we stand there and we say, what a wonderful savior. That is what is amazing about grace. It wasn't as if I sat there and went, I'm just going to believe because I'm going to believe. It was God who opened our eyes to show us the need of a Savior, to show us who He was, and that and only then do we stand amazed at His great salvation. And that what causes us to go, who am I? That the Lord of all the earth would even stoop to know my name. And we just stand there and say, what a wonderful Savior. And when we start thinking like that, chapter, verse 9 here, is a natural outcome to how we are to be living. Because what verse 9 is going to tell us is not going to come naturally. Verse number 9 is, needs to have a supernatural work because there is no way on earth you're responding this way if you are not a follower of Christ. So the Spirit's work must take place by the renewing of our mind. Because here's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, that the Word of God continues to renew our mind to help us to think like we ought, because we know in our own flesh we're not going to think this way. Because when someone does something evil against you, your natural response is, it's coming your way. And it's the only thing that's going to limit me coming your way with evil is my mind has not been that imaginative yet to come up with an even better way to get back at you. That, sadly, is our response. Someone wronged me, and there you go. Someone cut you off in traffic, and, you know, if I could reach into their car, I would tell them what I think of them. And you're going to go, how's verse 8 working when that happens? To this you have been called. That's what verse 9 tells us. To this you were called. What is the this? The this is verse 8 that we literally talked around. In the call of salvation that has gone out to those of you who are followers of Christ, this call to follow Christ is the call to live verse 8. And then it is seen by verse 9. So number point two here, we're going to get to the outward action. Notice in verse 9 here, it says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. So it starts off with the negative. Do not do this. Because when the Bible tells you not to do something, remember the reason why it's telling you not to do it is because by nature you want to do that. All right? Because the Bible does not tell you, uh, by the way, you know, you need to not be, you need to be selfish. No, because we are naturally selfish. So what does the Bible tell us? Don't. Because it knows our sin nature is going to do something. It knows in our sin nature we want to respond this way. And it's literally saying, no, this is what you're not to do. But then it even goes even further. And this is the part where it's even harder to do in your own flesh. It doesn't say just ignore when someone does evil against you. Or if someone reviles you, it doesn't just say, just be quiet and don't do anything. What are we supposed to do, though? Do the opposite and actually bless. And you're going, what is going on here? Because the word bless literally means to praise or to cause to prosper. Why in the world, if someone did evil against me or reviled me, why in the world would I want to see them prosper? If anything, I want to see them fail. If anything, I want to see them struggle. But what God is saying, if you claim to be a follower of Christ, this is how you act. This is how you respond to things. 
And these things that are in front of us here, we have to say, wait a minute, that's a totally new way of thinking. Almost like this is the way of people that had been born again would act because their old way of thinking is this way. And now literally they need a new way of thinking. It's almost like you need a new birth to function this way. And we go, imagine that. This is what Jesus said in John 3. You need to be born again, meaning that the old self needs to be dealt with and the new needs to come. This is the exact opposite of how man in his sinful state lives. So point number three is what is the reason for this and what is the result of things going on here? So I want to spend some time here in 1 Peter and walk through here in the final conclusion here a couple of things to think through. So we've been called by God to this way of living, to bless instead of revile. Let's go back to 1 Peter 2 here and listen to the example that we've been given. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. In 1 Peter 2, 21, literally the same phrase Peter is using here. And he says, for to this you have been called. Imagine that. We just literally talked about what is the this you have been called. And Peter here says, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example. Meaning when Jesus came down here, when Jesus Christ came down here, he left us an example as Christ's followers to follow. And then in verse 22, it reminds us he didn't commit any sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So it wasn't like he deserved these things. But when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? He continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. We have been healed. And I would argue that is the blessing that in Jesus, when he was down here, he did not revive, but what did he do? He blessed. And how did he bless? Through giving his life on the cross. And so now as Christ's followers, we are called to do the same as well. So what does this blessing look like? Uh, the word blessing here says, bless for those for to those who you were, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Uh, before we get into this word blessing, that word obtain there um, is in the in the Greek there. That word obtain literally carries with it like you would obtain an inheritance, not something that you obtained on your own. Like I went out and found this, but the word there carries with it another way of saying that you may obtain the inherited blessing. Is the concept that is that is there in the text? And so when we think through this, we go, so what is this inherited blessing? And Peter does give us an, an inkling of what this is in 1 Peter chapter 1, 22 and 23, when he talks about this idea of being obedient. In verse 22, 1 Peter 1, 22, he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, which is what we just talked about, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And the reason all this happens is, he says in verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, through the living and abiding word of God. So what is this blessing that we're going to obtain? That blessing that we're going to obtain is an imperishable blessing that comes about through an imperishable seed, the inheritance that is given to us, which is our salvation. And I'm going to expand upon that a little bit more. But I want to spend some time here real quick breaking down the point of verses 8 and 9. So, again, the main point of this passage is this. Bless those who curse you. That there are going to be people that are going to revile you and everything else. The Christian response to that is blessing. So we have to try to figure out what does this look like? How does this play out? 
Because when someone curses you, you don't just respond and say, blessings be upon you, and you walk away. Like, what, what are you doing besides just that? I mean, it's, we're not all just, you know, acting as if the world sneezes, and we just say, God bless you, and we move on. Like, what does this look like tangibly, how this happens? Well, again, I want to make sure we're clear on this. It can only happen through the inward change of the gospel, the gospel doing its work collectively on us as a whole. And we move together in these directions. And the reason why we need to allow the gospel to shape our thinking is because God literally has called you to this type of living. This is your marching orders. Your marching orders are to enter a world that is going to mock you, enter a world that's going to revile you, enter a world that is going to tell you you're backwards in your thinking, and all these other things, and our response to this is to be blessing. Our response to this is to be gracious. Our response is not to be one, well, you know what, one day you're getting come, it's coming your way. You know, remember Jonah? God says to him, Nineveh's going to be destroyed. What does Jonah say? Oh, I'm more than willing to tell him. Destruction is coming. And then he very reluctantly sat up on the hill saying, all right, God, go at him. All right, but what did Jonah need to understand? God's salvation work is to all the world, not just to the Jew, but to the Gentile as well. And what should he have a heart towards? Calling them to repentance while there is still time. So when we think of this blessing that is there, when instead of reviling, instead of doing evil for evil, there's two types of blessing that I want to talk about. Because what can happen is this. We can so quickly think, and we can treat the Bible, and we can even treat, sadly, many times God and His promises as if He is the great, almost you want to call it vending machine in the sky. So you go up to a vending machine, and if you want a blessing in this vending machine, you hit A, 1, 0, and... Out comes the thing. So, like, if I want to get a new car, as long as I claim the right promise, right, and I believe the right promise, what's coming my way? A new car, right? And so, literally, we have the name it and claim it. And if you didn't get the thing you were claiming, you just need to claim it again, all right? And we're just, we're living in that world, which is a completely unbiblical world to be living in, as if you're going to name it and claim it. I can give you something to name and claim that you will have suffering in this world, and so when the suffering comes, claim it, rely on the Holy Spirit, that we live in a veil of tears, right? Welcome to the world we live in. This idea that we're going to name it and claim it, and that's blessing. But there is a blessing that comes. There is an immediate earthly blessing that comes when we live out verses 8 and 9. The immediate blessing that comes is an also a command that Paul tells us in Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, live at peace with all people. What he's saying is, Fight for living at peace with one another. And the way you fight for living at peace with one another is when you are reviled, what do you do? You bless. Because bitterness destroys not only the person you're trying to pour it out on, but it also destroys you. There's a quote that talks about if you are bitter, you might as well dig two graves, one for you and one for the person you're bitter against, because literally it will destroy them. I can guarantee you there are people sitting in this room right now that you're allowing other people to live rent-free in your mind. You wake up in the morning and you're like, I'm just looking for a way to get at him. You know, you're allowing it to mull over. If you are in an intense situation, all you do is think about that conflict over and over and over again. And you have, I have been in here multiple times in my life and I've had hundreds of thousands of conversations 
in my life, in my mind, over and over and over again. There was a time that someone accused me of doing something that was not even close to the truth, and for weeks, all I thought about is if I ever get a chance to talk to them again, I am going to rectify the situation, and here's how I'm going to do it. I thought about it when I was getting up in the morning. I thought about it when I was swimming. I thought about it when I was doing every little thing, and this person was living rent-free in my mind over and over and over again, and it just chewed at me. Um, one of the funny things we're going is when I'm having conversations in my mind, I will move my hands, and Allison will go, who are you talking to? You know, why don't you just say that out loud? Because I have phenomenal conversations in my mind because... Vengeance is Tim, I will repay, says Tim, right? Isn't that what the text says? No. Vengeance is his, right? So when I say I'm going to do this, if I say I'm going to be the Captain Justice, right? I'm saying, God, you don't know what you're doing. I don't trust you. I've got this figured out, not you. Let me take this. But the immediate blessing of living a life that is unified, that is sympathetic, that understands brotherly love, that comes from a tender heart and a humble mind, is one of a clear conscience. That you're able to rest your head at bed at night and say, honestly, as much as possible, I'm living at peace with all men. That we pursue peace. That's really easy to say when you haven't been offended, right? I don't know how many, it's great, it's easy to say when someone's coming to you and they're all upset, you go, just forgive them. Until it's me, Right? And then you're like, wait a minute, you know. But then there's also even further, what is this blessing? The blessing goes even greater than that. The blessing is that eternal blessing one day where we will stand before Christ. And he will say, welcome. Where we will be free from sin. The sin that so easily separates us from God. Because when the Bible talks about what is the ultimate blessing that we are pursuing after, all of the blessings of a clear conscience and things like this are only a foretaste of being with Christ. The point of the Bible from beginning to end is what mankind was created to have a relationship with God in a beautiful, sinless environment where we were to flourish and to walk with Him in the cool of the day. But sin. You go to the book of Revelation and we have that back again forevermore. No more sin causing division, no more sin causing, causing heartache, no more sin getting between you and your Savior. If that doesn't get the flame of the Christian walk going that one day we will have that, I would go your woods wet. Because we need to start focusing on that. And so the things of this world are but for a moment the things of this world just roll off of us like water off of a duck's back concept. Because you know what? I should get excited as a Christ follower when I am reviled, just like Peter later on in his life is going to be like, this is exciting, I get to die just like my Savior did, but I'm not even going to die like that. As church history tells us, he died upside down on a cross because he didn't want to even come close to having the privilege of dying like his Savior. I mean, do we think that way? When all of a sudden someone mocks you, you say, what a joy I have right now to bless you? Because that's going to literally knock your socks off. Because everybody else, when you are being attacked, everybody else is going to go, you just wait. When your back is turned, I'm going to show you the love of Christ, you know, as with a clenched fist. That's not the love of God. 
and just a little bit of an inkling into my own heart. So, at an ungodly time of 11.30 one night, because remember, nothing good happens after 10 o'clock. I'll just throw that out to you. My phone rang, and a police officer called me and said, I just want to let you know you have a hole in one of the windows of your church. And I'm like, so how did that happen? And he goes to explain to me that someone punched a hole in a window of our church. And in my mind, I'm grappling around like, this is the last thing I want to be doing at 11.30, dealing with a hole in a window. And so I was annoyed. I got in the car. I drove the car down the road. About halfway to church, I realized I didn't have a key to get in because I grabbed my daughter's keys instead of my own. And so Tim's mulling in his brain. Stupid thing. So I'm kicking myself. So now it's like 11.45, and remember, no one should be up at 11.45. And so I'm grumpy coming into church here that I was not tender-hearted, feeling any type of brotherly love or sympathy, except for the law at that time. And I'm driving in here just frustrated beyond frustrated. I got to deal with this. And then I come in, I look at him like, oh, that's right, we have glass that's not the, the full falls apart. These are big shards of glass. I'm like, what am I going? I don't know where I'm going. Like, I don't have a board to cover this up. I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I call Kurt, and I'm not trying to complain, but kind of like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Like, there's a hole in the window, all right? And so I'm wrestling through this. I get here. The young lady that the police officers are dealing with are giving her a hard, uh, she's giving them a hard time, and so my love for her is getting, you know, and in my mind, I'm going, oh, you're going to pay because you broke a window in the church. And you're going to, well, we're going to sock it to you. You know, because you broke a window in God's church, right? And you're going to get a chance to see some justice because, you know, you broke a window. And it wasn't until a little bit later that the Lord used His Holy Spirit to bring about saying, are you actually caring about the fact that this girl actually broke a window in a place that could help her out and share with them the gospel? Because my heart was going, you know, someone has to teach these kids a lesson, right? Someone has to let her know that, you know, what she did was wrong. Because, you know, I've got to give an account to, you know, to the leadership of the church. Are we using our resources wisely and all these other things? And in my mind, I'm like, I've got to do all this stuff. And before you know, I'm going, what has God called me to do here, Tim? And so by God's grace, we were able to reach out to this young lady. And not only that, we were able to share the gospel with her. She was able to come in, and not only that, but her sister and her mom were able to come in and share the gospel with her. But the Lord had to take me out to the woodshed to say, knock it off, Tim. And it's so easy for us to say, wait a minute, she actually came to the place that needed help. And I look in this and I say, you know, Tim, you love to talk about the sovereignty of God, but are you actually believing that God was sovereign enough that of all the places she could have punched a hole in a window, what did she do? She came to the place that actually has the truth. I mean, it could have been anybody's home that we would never have had a chance to interact with them. Instead of saying, do we have an opportunity here? And so the question in front of us is from Peter is, what do we do? Because this is hard. It is really, really, really hard. How do we not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling? So let's look at how Peter gives us the answers to this in 1 Peter here. 
So we're just going to do a little journey through. So 1 Peter 1, 13 and 14, what does he remind us? The command is there. Prepare your mind. Get ready for action. This is going to be something that you literally need to be sober-minded on. You need to be thinking straight. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your mind on the gospel. Because I can guarantee you that night when I was coming in, I was ticked off that I had to get out of bed. I was really annoyed the reason I had to get out of bed to deal with something that was ridiculous. Was my mind set fully on the grace of God? No, my mind was set on Tim and the inconvenience it has for Tim. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, which I was conforming to. But what are we called to be? Be holy in your conduct, since I am holy. He goes on to tell us in chapter 2, verse 2 through 3, As our minds are girded up, we are supposed to desire the sincere milk of the Word. Desire the things of God. As we taste and see that God is good, it will change our desires in our hearts. So we must be people of the Word that are allowing the Word of God to renew our minds, to cause us to desire the things of God greater than we desire anything else. Because as we start to do that, that will cause us to be obedient. How are you obedient? When you are reviled, what do you do? You bless. Next, 1 Peter 2, 20 and 24. We see the example of Christ. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? In verse 23. But he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. We allow God, who is the judge of all of the universe, to be the judge of all of the universe. We are not jury and judge. We are the ones who are pointing them to Christ. And then, not only that... Listen to this psalm that we're going to be talking about next week in 1 Peter 3, 10, 11, and 12. And this psalm is actually Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16, where Peter quotes, and notice what he says in verse 10, 11, and 12. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, what are you supposed to do? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. You want to have a good life? You want to have your best life now? Like they always love to spin it. What are you to do? Look to Jesus. Turn from evil and do good. And how do we do that? Verse 8 is the key. By having our heart and our mind focused on Christ and Christ alone. Also, too, it's interesting here, and we're going to spend a lot, a lot of time on this. Remember the Psalms were the songs that the Jewish people sang? And see how many times Peter, when he's in the middle of writing, God brings to his mind the music that he sings. I would also argue one of the ways you fight this battle is what are you listening to? What is the music that goes through your heart and your mind? You know, are they songs about revenge? Are they songs about that are God-honoring to lift you up because in those knee-jerk reactions, what, what you have been putting into your mind comes out? So what did we learn today? Some of you might be saying, hold on a minute, Tim. You do not know how wronged I've been in my life. You do not know the people that have hurt me. You do not know the suffering that I have seen. You might be literally singing, nobody knows my sorrows right now in your mind. And my heart breaks for that. But I'd love to remind you of a quote 
There's a very interesting story called the Count of Monte Cristo, where a guy is wronged, and he lives his life of one of revenge. Literally, the whole movie is this guy waking up every day thinking of, I'm going to take you down. And literally, that what's kept him alive, which is its own interesting way of how revenge works. But in the movie, Edmond Dante says this. It's near the end of the movie, I think. Fool that I am, he says, that I did not tear out my heart the day I resolved to avenge myself. What is he saying there? The day I decided that I was going to take it all on, he said, I was a fool that I did not do what? Just rip it out. Get rid of it. Because it consumed me. Alice and I were talking about this this morning. I was like, I was trying to look for some other quotes because as I was practicing the sermon this morning, that came to my mind about that story of revenge. And I was like, I said, Alison, we should spend some time watching that to remind ourselves again of the depth of how revenge can destroy us, because what have we been called to do as Christians? Leave that to God. What are we called to do? We get the joy of not having to do that. We get the joy of blessing others. We get the joy when people mock us. We say, okay, how can I help you? There is only, I can only think, and this is a sad, I was in my mind of going, was there ever a time, Tim, that this actually happened? All right, and I would honestly say it happened by mistake in my own life, that I had chance, when I was working down at the boat launch, there was an opera, this guy came in, and everything I did to help him was wrong. And he was just being so grumpy. I learned some new four-letter words about myself that I did not know before that. And I'm down there at this boat launch, and all of a sudden, he takes off, and his motor doesn't work. And he starts floating towards the shore where there were some rocks. And I can honestly say it was not because I was going don't revile for revile or whatever. Just the natural reaction of Tim was, I ran over, I got my feet when I pushed him out. I didn't say anything to him because I was still upset, but I just pushed him out. Probably more because I didn't want to have to deal with a boat that was hitting the rocks and then all the other stuff. And I got back and this girl goes, wow, you really took the high road on that. And I had none of my mind was going, oh, wait a minute. Like, oh, that would have been a great example of actually would have done it on purpose. But in my own mind, I'm like, okay, this is what he's talking about. When you were mocked, when you were reviled, you look and go, how can I bless them? How can I encourage them? Because you know what? I'm not doing it in my own strength. I'm doing the strength that God supplies. And I'll even throw this. Let's just not look outside. Let's look at your spouse. Let's look at your relationships that you have even in the body. Instead of fighting with one another? What would it look like if we look for ways we can encourage and bless one another? Boy, wouldn't that be a group of countercultural people? Not out of just the pie in the sky that we're making things up. I want to be clear, but genuine encouragement. Because flattery is a sin. But we have been called to bless, not because that's just the right thing to do, but literally that's who we are. If you claim the name of Christ, these are your marching orders. So when you wake up in the morning, you're going, how can I seek to bless those around me? Far too long the church has been out being the ones marching and saying, we're just going to condemn everybody. What we should be doing is saying, you're a sinner. Let's learn about grace. God is the one who condemns, and we leave it to him. Our job is to share the gospel, to point others to Christ. And so one day, we will stand before God, Lord willing, which is the thing that I desire 
that each one of us will do because Christ will look at us and he will say, not good, good job, good and faithful servant because you did it. He will see what the Holy Spirit did through you and say, well done. Because you will be wronged. And my prayer is that you're going to be having this song that we're about ready to sing being the whistle, if you want to say, or the, the song in your step that don't be dismayed, whatever be tie, whatever's coming your way, don't be dismayed. God will take care of you. You don't need to fight your own battles. God will take care of you. Do we really mean that? Do we really believe that? Or do you say, hold on, God. Captain Justice here knows better than you. Let's pray. Dearly Father, thank you for your word and your truth. Thank you that it's you who we are to look for. Thank you that it's you who we are to entrust our souls to. Forgive us for the attitudes that so get in the way of this wonderful command. So, dearly Father, may we bless and allow the judgment to be left to the holy and righteous God who will do what is right. Thank you that it is not our job. May we truly, from the heart, grasp that you will take care of us no matter what. In your name we pray. Amen. You could stand with us as we sing.